But there are few senses that are as acute, and there are few discomforts, I think, that are more severe than extreme thirst. If you've ever been thirsty, I mean really thirsty to the point of being parched, you, you don't soon forget it. All of your other senses fade. All of your other discomforts are minor in comparison. And your, your mind screams out in pain. It screams out for water. And your tongue feels like a, a bag of sawdust. And it feels like somebody is, is, uh, is taking a, a sewing needles and pricking your throat with them. And you feel like death is at the door. And you'd welcome it if it would finally hurry up and come. And thirst is, is severe thirst like that. It's such, a, such an acute vivid sensation that it's used in scripture to speak of the reality and the severity of pain. If you remember the story of the rich man and and Lazarus and the torments of hell burning in eternal fire, Lazarus asks for water, or the rich man asks Lazarus rather for, for, for water. Why does he want water? Well, It doesn't say he wants water to drench the fires of hell, but just a drop to quench this burning thirst. And the pain of his thirst was more severe than the torment of the flame. Of course, you can think of other illustrations of severe thirst in Scripture. Another scriptural illustration would be that of of Christ. And all that Christ bears for us upon the cross Not a word is said in the Bible about the pain of the nail through his hands. But it does record that in the midst of agony, Christ cries out regarding one particular pain, I thirst. And these Romans who would pride themselves on the cruelty of the crucifixion, who wouldn't go so far as to deny someone something to drink when they thirsted, on a cross. Most of us, if if not all of us, haven't been that thirsty. But we've at least experienced enough thirst to have some appreciation for the, the torture that extreme thirst could be, the urgent need to find some relief quickly. And that's the picture. The picture of thirst is the picture that the psalmist uses when he speaks about his urgent desire, his urgent thirst for the house of God. It's a thirst that is acute, a thirst that must be satisfied. And in Psalm 63, David is, the the setting of the writing of this psalm is that David is in the wilderness of Judah. He's been chased there by King Saul. It was a difficult time, a difficult excursion. This is one that is fraught with dangers. In the wilderness, food is scarce, but clean water, even harder to find. David felt the pains of thirst. And yet, as painful as his physical thirst may have been, the discomfort of that serves for him as an illustration, a tangible, physical demonstration of an even more intense longing that David has. Of an even more intense thirst than that physical thirst in the wilderness, the longing to worship the Lord, to be in the place where God would be with him. 
As we look at Psalm 63, and again, you'll find it on page 806 or 807, rather, of your hymnals. Uh, there are a lot of psalms, different types of psalms. Of course, we're familiar with the praise psalms. And if you've been here for any length of time, you've probably heard Lacey Anders, who was here last week or the week before. He was here recently as uh, Lacey uh, didn't preach on a psalm that time, but quite often when he comes, we'll, uh, we'll speak on one of the psalms of ascent. So we know of those psalms, psalms of praise. And if we had a category for this psalm, perhaps we could call this a psalm of longing. David longs for God and his longing is satisfied. It's a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And let's read this psalm responsively as we often do. I'll begin and respond by reading together with me the verses in the bold print. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him. While the mouths of liars will be silenced. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look at the psalm in all too brief a time that we have to try to break down these verses, we pray that you would bless the opening of your word that we might bring the truths of the gospel to light in it and glorify your name through the work of your spirit and the word of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to look at David's thirst. That's the theme with which he opens up this psalm and I want to see it in three points. First we're going to look at David's requirement, what he needs, and then David's refreshment and then David's rescue. Let's look at David's requirement in the first couple of verses, and that's how he begins the psalm, by setting this stage, how he earnestly seeks for God, using his thirst as an illustration. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. We can state David's requirement pretty succinctly, uh, for David, it's the worship of God. David's requirement is to be with God, to be in the place where God has promised to be with David. And he begins by a statement of covenant loyalty. Oh God, you are my God. I am faithful to you and you have been faithful to me. And he continues, I earnestly seek you. And the King James translates this, early will I seek thee. And this, this conveys a, a sense of urgency in, in David, a, a sense of longing, a sense of priority. The worship of God for David wasn't a worship of convenience. The house of God wasn't a place that, that David would go to when other more pressing priorities weren't so important to him. When, when other things allowed it, he would attend 
in God's tabernacle. But no, the house of God was his priority. It was his urgency. He prioritized his life around it. And when he couldn't go, he was chased into the wilderness by Saul. Oh, how he longed for it. And this earnestness of his seeking God's house, wanting to be back in that place where he could worship him, is brought out by David's illustrations that are attached to it. Now, here's the longing, I, I will seek you earnestly. And then he follows that up by telling us what he means by earnestly. My soul longs for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there's no water, David turns his physical thirst into a vivid illustration of his spiritual longing. So here's these two illustrations. One's regarding the soul, one's regarding the flesh. My soul thirsts. And and David chooses to, to describe his thirst using the same word that the children of Israel used when they were in the wilderness and they couldn't find water to drink. There are lots of different words that you could use for thirst, just like there are lots of different words in the English language. Somebody might say, are you thirsty? You might say, yes, I'm thirsty. Or you might say, I'm not thirsty, I'm parched. Or my throat feels like it's on fire. Or I'm going to die if I don't get something to drink. There are many different ways we can describe thirst. The word that David uses, it puts him in the category of the children of Israel in the wilderness, desperate for water. And they can't find it without God's help, without God's miraculous provision. And when he provides it for them, it is a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on their behalf, indicating that they need to be satisfied with something greater even than water. That's the word that David uses here. This acute kind of thirst. He too is in the wilderness. He too is thirsting severely for water, yes, but even more importantly, he is thirsting to be with God in his house. Of anybody, David had the best excuse not to seek the house of God. But oh, how he longs for it. And of course, you're all here today, so in some sense, we preach to the choir, don't we? When we talk about you ought to be desiring God's house. But I'm often amazed after several years of ministry, the the reasons that I will hear for not being in God's house. Some of them are laughable. For David, nothing can keep him away. And how how often the slightest discomforts and inconveniences are easily used as excuses not to be in the house of God, not to inconvenience ourselves, but, but, but for David, no matter how much discomfort he is experiencing, absence from God is the most strenuous ache for him. The word soul in the Hebrew, my soul thirsts, that word soul is an indication of a person's very life, the whole of their being. It's a word that expresses totality. And David is saying, all that I am, every fiber of my being, we might say, from my head to my toe, I ache to be with God. My soul is parched like the throats of the children of Israel in the wilderness of of Sinai. I must drink from the fountain of your word. As they drank from the rock, I must drink from the fountain of the tabernacle. I must drink from Christ. I must drink from the one who is to come, who is pictured all throughout the Old Testament. The one for whom the people of Israel 
thirsted, his soul thirsted, and then also his flesh. David's, David's uh, longing for God isn't just some ethereal wish. David's longing for God isn't just a, a psychological addiction. I need my spiritual fix. Like Marx said, the religion is the opiate of the masses. It's, it's, it's not that I, I need my kick, my spiritual kick. I need to feel better. No, David said, my flesh longs for God. My whole being is in God, yearns for God. David uses a word to describe that desire. That It's an interesting word because it's the only time this word is used in all the Bible. We don't find it anywhere else in scriptures. Well, how do you know what a word means when it's not found anywhere else in the Bible? Well, you have to look outside of the Bible. Where was the, how was this word used in other places in David's time that isn't in scripture? And in, in, in literature outside of the Bible, it had an idea of a longing that was so great of a need that was so acute that a person would faint. They would begin to, their blood would drain from their face. They'd become pale is the literal idea of that word. I'm, I'm about to faint. My longing for you is so great as one who hasn't had water in a long time would faint from its lack. So he's using the strongest terms to indicate my, my desire for God is so great that without you, I would die. His physical needs were great, but David's physical needs, rather than David's physical needs distracting him from the worship of God, which is so often the case, David's physical needs drove him to God, drove him to a fuller expression of his desire to worship the Lord. That's David's longing, David's desire, David's need. And we can note a couple of things from from David's expression before we move on to his refreshment. First, we can note that the place of the wilderness for David, the place of the wilderness in the providence of God is the place where God chooses to make himself known to David. It's David's sense of acute thirst that causes him to recognize his need for God in this tremendous Way Just as the people of Israel, God makes himself known to them in the wilderness. He makes himself known to Elijah. Where? In the wilderness. In his desperation. In his discouragement. He longs for God. And God shows himself to him. John the Baptist in the wilderness. Christ himself in the wilderness. It is into the wilderness that the Holy Spirit drives Jesus Christ. Because it is there. The Holy Spirit empowers him to do battle and defeat Satan to claim the throne of David. In the wilderness into which God sends us is the place where he goes with us. I was reminded of that at this last presbytery meeting. And I, we as a congregation have prayed for John and Marcy Hearn, whose son died suddenly of a heart attack a few months ago, 26 years old. They found him dead. And this couple that's probably in their mid-60s or so, devastated by this. And here, just yesterday, the two of them are a presbytery. What are they doing? Serving the Lord. John stands up and gives a testimony to the presbytery of his continued work. He works on the education and ecumenicity of the presbytery. 
and he stopped and paused and spoke for about five minutes of the way in which in that wilderness of the loss of their son, God had ministered to them. God had worked in their hearts in ways that they had never seen before. God met them in that wilderness. What a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness in this family whose desperation in the wilderness drove them to Christ and not away from him. And God meets them there and meets their needs. There was hardly a dry eye in the place, of course, as they told the story of the loss of their son. But the joy was so evident in their own hearts because God comforts them in their sorrow. And they realized their need for God in a way that only a tragedy like that could communicate to them. We can also note the second thing I think we may learn from what David's saying here is what Augustine reminds us of. It's the encouragement of thirst. Augustine says this, are you spiritually parched? To thirst means that you're still alive that you're still longing. Augustine writes, if we acknowledge ourselves as thirsting, then we will acknowledge ourselves as drinking also. For he that thirsts in this world, in the world to come, will be satisfied according to the Lord's saying, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for the same shall be satisfied. What does our thirsting do? What does our longing in the wilderness do? It continues to point us to Jesus Christ who satisfies our thirst, to Jesus Christ who fills our cup, and it points us to the cup of suffering, the cup which he bore and which he gives to us. It points to another place in eternity where we will be filled. It points us to the pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It points us to the fact that we will dwell with God in perfection, that we will taste of the waters of the river of life and our souls, which are parched now in this sin-cursed earth, will be satisfied with the presence of God, a taste of which, just a small taste of which, we receive when we gather together in his house. And he is present with us. And for David, the flesh is failing. For David, he might die in the wilderness. But he knows the promises of God. God has promised him that he will be seated upon his throne, that a son of his would remain on the throne forever, and David clings to the covenant promises of God. His flesh fails, but his soul yearns for that refreshing water of life. And our flesh also fails. We, like David... After many years, we will die. But our hope is in the life of the resurrection. His life, his flesh longs David's flesh because it's needy. But it will be satisfied with life. Because David drank deeply of the water of life. David quenched his thirst with a flood of the words of God. And we too hear the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who tells the woman at the well that he bears water, that he carries a living water, living water for those who are dead in sin. Water of life, not just to quench thirst of the body, but to quench the thirst of the soul, to quench fire. And how we ought to drink deeply of that water, drink deeply of that word, for in it is life. So for David, this is no illusion. This is no 
mere illustration. This isn't religious psychobabble. This is real. David says in verse 2, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. God manifested himself to David in the tabernacle. His glory cloud had come and David had seen that glory cloud. David had seen the refreshing manifestation of God. He had experienced his quenching. He knew what it was to have his soul satisfied and he looks for it again. And he looks and he's satisfied. And that's our second point Then David's refreshment. We've seen David's requirement and now David's refreshment in verses 3. Through six. So in verse 1, David proclaims his covenant loyalty toward God. God, you are my God. And then in verse 3, we read of God's covenant loyalty to David. Your steadfast love, David says, is better than life. Your steadfast love, your loving kindness, some translations put it. Your covenant loyalty, your covenant faithfulness, it's better than even life itself. That's what I need. And David knew the value of water. He knew, particularly in the wilderness, he knew, if I don't get some, I'll die. I need water to live. But better than living is my covenant relationship with God. Better than life itself. Should I die in the next minute, it's no matter if my covenant relationship with God is secure. If I know him and he knows me. If I dwell with him and he dwells with me. That is my life. Life is precious, David says, but God's love infinitely more so precious. Physical life, temporary. It will vanish. All of us will die. Our bodies will dry up. But God's love will never dry up. Always satisfying, everlasting, quenching, life-giving. And to David, the physical thirst while excruciating is no matter. He longs for God. And God satisfies him with his love, his care, his presence. And David's parched lips begin to sing. My lips will praise you. The tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, but my lips move. My lips praise you. And nothing could keep David quiet. I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Verse 4. David lifts up his hands before God. What did that mean? Well, in Israel, it was a sign. It was a common way that prayer was made. We see it in Psalm 141. We see it in the way that hands are often seen as a posture for prayer, the lifting up of the hands to God. Not like this, but like this. Fill me, O Lord. And it was a picture of the... uh, uh, Psalm 142 sees it as a sign of the evening sacrifices ascending up to God. Offering up ourselves to God. Lamentations uh, chapter 3 says, Let us lift up our hearts with our palms to heaven. The act of, of raising the hands signified as well then. As we lift up our sacrifice to God, we lift them up as clean hands. Psalm 24, acceptable worship before God. David's now engaged in the worship of God, blessing his name in the midst of his his trials, and God fills him with blessing. And this we see in verse 5 as David says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. David's soul is satisfied. This isn't satisfied the way we often, well, I'm satisfied. 
you order something online and you know it had three stars and you're a little concerned but you get it in on three stars on Amazon out of the five and you get the thing in and it, I'm satisfied it did what I wanted it to do not bad for four dollars and ninety-five cents I this presbytery meeting I checked into the hotel in the more I checked out of the hotel in the morning I'd reserved the hotel for two nights I came back at 10 o'clock at night and here they had done me the favor of checking me out of the hotel while I was gone I had no place to stay and the rooms were filled, and the room of the hotel across the street was filled, and the room of the hotel across that street was filled, and I ended up at a budget eight, suffering, you know, for the Lord at, at budget eight. So I write the manager, I want to be satisfied. I'm not happy with this. Not only did I have cold water, there was also no hot water at this particular place, but then you check me out of my hotel thinking perhaps you're doing me a favor because you don't have any cold water. I want satisfaction for this. That's not the way David's using this. I don't just want what I need to have. It's good enough. David isn't saying God gave me enough to get by, but the word that he uses indicates God fills me to overflowing. Once I was, I was parched and dry. I was staring death in the face, but now I'm filled up and I'm overflowing with rivers of grace and mercy with fat and rich foods. And what's interesting the way David puts this is by law, in the sacrifice, in the tabernacle, the fat was not to be eaten. Leviticus 3 indicates that the fat portions belong to the Lord. But here in the worship of the Lord, it's David's portion. More than I need. More than I deserve to have. You've filled me. Psalm 73. God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion. Psalm 119, you are my portion. Psalm 142, I cried unto you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge and you are my portion in the land of the living. The portion that David was to give to the Lord, the fat of the animal, becomes his portion. Those who call upon the Lord will be satisfied. You know how often our wilderness experiences, as it were, if we were to coin that phrase from, from David, those experiences of tragedy, your enemies opposing us in the gospel, become for us vehicles for isolation from God, but instead they'll drive us to him that we might see that God is our portion. He fills us. And in verse 6, we see a further indication of David's worship. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate you upon you in the watches of the night, day, night, every responsibility, every work of David, God satisfy him. God satisfies him. And all of this worship offered up by David leads to our third point, David's rescue. We've seen his requirement. He thirsts for God. We see his refreshment. God is my portion. He fills me. He quenches that thirst, fills me to overflowing. Now let's look at David's rescue in verses 7 through 11. There's a reason for David's hope. This isn't just some guy who's down in the dumps in the wilderness, and if I think positive thoughts, God will come and save me. David says, no, there's a real reason for this hope. I trust in the promises of God. Here it is. You have been my help, verse 7, and in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. David says, you have been my help. You have been the faithful covenant keeper since Genesis chapter 3. You are the one who has always been who you always will be, and you will continue to be that for me. You have never failed, though I have failed. David declares, the Lord has been my help, evidenced by the shelter of his wings, under which David says, I have been hidden by God. 
David loves that imagery of wings in the Psalms. He uses it about half a dozen times. And of course, wings were a picture of God's protective presence, the power of the wings of an eagle, the strength of those wings which keep the young under her care. Protection, defense, refuge. David borrows that illustration several times. Life is in the wings which protect And David is shielded from the murderous attempts of Saul against his own life. And yet, even in the sheltering presence of the wings of God, we are pointed to the one to whom David looks when he goes to the tabernacle, when he sees the sacrifices performed on his behalf. He looks to the Messiah. Interestingly, it's Christ who claims for himself the imagery of wings. And it's an image that is only used of God in the Old Testament. And Christ claims that imagery for himself. This Savior, when he speaks of his longing to gather Jerusalem under his wings, Jesus isn't just using a clever illustration. He is making a statement about who he is and how he saves you beyond any salvation you could find anywhere else. And this Savior offers to us the same refuge and protection, having died for our sins, becomes the propitiation for our sins, shields us from the wrath of God. The ravages of the wrath of God cannot touch us, for Christ has wrapped his wings around us. The wages of death cannot seize us, for Christ delivers us from the penalty of sin. He guards us under his wings, watching over his children with constant care. And for this reason, David says in verse 8, My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. I want you to pay attention to this verse. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. David's echoing probably his most famous psalm, 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. David, who is driven into the wilderness by his enemies, finds there in that wilderness... (laughs) the protective shelter of the wings of God. And David, rather than allow God's enemies to drive him from God, rather than allow his enemies to drive him from God, his enemies drive him to God. And under his wings, he clings to the God of his fathers. But here's what's important. And for David, this is what is important. David clings and is safe He holds on to God, but what is important is that God holds on to me. David clings and he's safe. Why? Not because the strength of his grip on God is so great, but because of the strength of the protecting hand of the Father on him. Because the grip of the fathers is infinitely greater than the weak grip of the child who reaches toward him. Why is your salvation secure? Why can you be confident that God will keep his covenant promises? How can you be sure that he will save you? Is it because your hand is so firmly grasped around God's? Or is it because his infinite hand holds you infinitely safe 
and secure. It's not the strength of your grip on him that saves you. It's the strength of his grip on you. No one plucks you out of the Father's hand. What a glorious truth this is for David, whose grip at this point is probably fairly weak. That his hand in the Father's, the strength of that grip is that of the Father on him, protecting, guarding, guiding, preserving. Shall David be afraid? His enemies assail him. Christ prevails against them. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand, says our Savior. David, in the midst of the wilderness of adversaries, nevertheless, he apprehends that blessed truth that His life belongs, our lives belong in the mighty hand of God. That God whose sovereign providence controls everything. That God who conducts the affairs of nations, who protects the righteous, provides for the success and failures of empires, cares for your soul, supplies your need, answers your cries for help. And he does this in the wilderness of your sin. Sin may overwhelm us like a flood. And it's interesting, even in Psalm 88, when David speaks of the waves that overcome me later on in the psalm, says it's a flood that has overcome me. And when sin seems to flood over us and temptation seems to overcome us, how we must remember that we belong to God. We must cry out to him for his grip rescues us from the ravages of the flood. God answers our cry and he does this with his right hand upholding us and his right hand upholding his people. It's his right hand, David says. Psalm 49 says it's God's right hand that is filled with righteousness as David sought to be filled. It's his right hand, which Psalm 80 says is mighty. It's his right hand, which delivers the children of Israel out of Egypt and brings them to the land of promise, help and strength and sustenance and security and joyous victory for the people of God. And then the last section, David, then he recognizes that though I'm the one in the wilderness, it appears to me at this point that I'm on the losing end of things. I'm the one hiding In this wilderness, as Saul seeks to destroy me, but in the end, I trust in the promises of God. Verse 9 and 10, those who seek to destroy my life will go down into the depths of the earth, and they shall be given over to the power of sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Who ends up in the wilderness here? They do. David's eye is fixed upon, not upon the present condition, but David's eyes are fixed upon the promised consummation. And this is a psalm which is to give us the perspective of David in this wilderness. It's a wilderness perspective of redemption. That our eyes also would not be fixed upon our present sinful condition. Held under the torment and the power and the guilt of sin. But that our eyes would be fixed upon the promised consummation because the God who has always delivered will deliver us now and will deliver us even from death in the end. The victory is his. And even whatever setbacks we encounter due to the depravity of our own hearts, circumstances, our enemies may seem to have gained the upper hand 
things don't seem to be going well, but God has promised deliverance eternally. The Lord has promised David a godly offspring. The Lord has promised victory, and victory is his as surely as God has said it. And then verse 11, the king, then what's the result of all of this? David says in verse 11, the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, because the mouth of liars in the end will be stopped. The father of lies will be shut up and thrown into the bottomless pit forever. And what God says to David, he says to us. What God says to Israel in the Old Testament, he says to the Israel of God, the church of Jesus Christ, and in this the glory of Christ is seen, for Christ is king of the church and he is the head of the body, the culmination of the kingly line of David. Who is that? Well, it's none other than Jesus Christ. And David looks for the Savior. We glory in the Savior who has achieved that victory, who went into the wilderness and there encountered Satan and defeated him with the word of God, who defeated him again on the cross, who defeated him every time he performed a miracle, who defeated him in the resurrection, in the ascension, and will fully and finally defeat him when he comes again and ushers in a new creation. When we drink from the water of life, it will be the drink that satisfies our souls, not just for a small period of time, but for eternity. We glory in Jesus Christ. Not, not, we don't glory in our occasional victories. We glory in the permanent victory of our Savior. And our psalmist points us to the throne of Jerusalem, points us at the last verse of this psalm to the throne of David, a throne that isn't located in an earthly tabernacle or in an earthly palace, but in a heavenly throne where Christ rules and he judges and where we reign with him. We glory in him who is in glory. We glory in him because we are in glory with him and our longing for him is satisfied with our worship of him until that worship, that perfect dwelling can never be taken away. You know, like David, we've got our enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. But like David, we have our king. And like David, our present situation may not at times seem to be particularly encouraging, but like David, our joy, our sustenance, our life, our fullness is found in Jesus Christ always. The fact that we now and forevermore will live and reign with him. I want to close with Revelation chapter 1. We've finished the book of Revelation in Sunday school. Some of you are adding the word finally to that. I just love the way that the perspective that John brings. John, of course, of, of all people, you might say, well, it was easy for John because God gave him these glorious visions. But we need to remember where John was when he saw these visions and the fact that as Peter tells us, the completed word of God that we have is an even more certain promise than if we had been able to see these things with our own eyes. And like David, the, John the Apostle knew what it was like to be in the wilderness. 
we touched on this, of course, in Revelation. Here he is. He, he's writing the book of Revelation while he's in exile, not while he's on vacation. He wasn't taking a sabbatical in, in um, oh, I don't know, the sabbatical in Hawaii. He's exiled to the island of Patmos. And he tells his readers, I too have suffered tribulations. Exiled on Patmos is a place that is, is far removed from the powerful scene of the resurrection that, where the hearts of the apostles burned within them for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the certain victory of the gospel. And as John writes in exile, it has to cross his mind, and it, it, there are indications, of course, in the book of Revelation that it does cross his mind. What happened to the glorious dreams of the gospel that we once had when we saw the resurrection? What would become of, of their work, the work of the apostles, most of whom had died? Would the inspiring words of Christ who walked with us, would they prove to be in vain? Would our lives prove to be fruitlessly spent? Our investment in Jesus? No. The glorious message of the gospel of Christ is not limited to the strength of your grip. The gospel of Jesus Christ and that power is not bound by the extent of your own adverse circumstances. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message that would extend across the continents and across time. It is a message that would conquer the world. It is the message of the eternal Christ, and it is your message, and it is your victory. Let me close with these words that John the Exile writes in Revelation 1. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our stains by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom priests to our God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, I ask that the reality which David saw in the wilderness would be the reality that we see through your word, through the manner in which it points us to our blessed Savior and our glorious King, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.